please take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're spending extra time in Acts chapter 2 simply because of not necessarily how great Peter's sermon is, because of how good the Lord is in filling Peter with his spirit and preserving his words for us today. Uh, we can see through chapter 2, even some of chapter 1, God is telling us that he's equipping the church with his power so that we can then go and speak of his mighty works and then he would be glorified among the nations. That's kind of the pattern or the the outline of the whole book of Acts. It's, it's right there in chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to reference that again this morning. As part of this, this God filling the, the, the church with his spirit, um, he, he does this. He gives the spirit in just this incredible manner in Acts chapter 2 where they start speaking in languages they'd never spoken before. And people visiting out of town heard these languages and they said, how is this possible? We know these people don't know how to speak this language and yet here we are hearing it. What is going on? And so Peter, he stands up and he begins to speak. And he shares, last week we talked about the first part of his message, where he quotes from Joel. And Joel, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And we're seeing that. Peter and the people in, in Jerusalem that day are seeing the spirit of God being poured out on all flesh. This means all people in, in every area, male, female, rich, poor, educated, undereducated, important, non-important, no matter what, it's for all flesh is what Peter says from Joel. And in fact, one of the greatest passages in this whole sermon is what he says, what he quotes when he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that same word that's used in John 3.16, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so verse 22 is where we pick up today, and there's a transition here. And it's a tr- the, the first part of that was an explanation of what they were seeing. Here's the reason why you're seeing the Spirit manifested in such an incredible way today. But then this is the transition into the main point of Peter's message. And wouldn't you know it, it's about Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 22, we'll read through verse 36 today. Join with me as I read and then we'll pray again, ask God's blessing on our time. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, brothers, 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's let's pray. Lord, I, I hope and I pray that in my own heart, as I share this morning and in my friends who are listening this morning in their hearts, that we would not disassociate ourselves from the text in a sense that we think, oh, this was Peter just talking to this group of people in Jerusalem thousands of years ago. But instead, Lord, we would see our own active hand in this and that we would be taught by your word through your spirit, by your grace, to humble ourselves And to see Christ for who he really is. A savior and Lord. And then we might live for him. You can accomplish this, Lord, because we know that your spirit is still with your people. He's still speaking and moving and working even today in 2023. And so we pray, Lord, do that in this place today. For your own glory. For the sake of your kingdom here on earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as part of Peter's transition here, he calls out, he says, men of Israel, hey guys, that's that's what he's saying. Specifically, I think he is talking to the Jewish men there, and he calls them to pay attention. What does he say? He says, hey guys, listen up, hear these words that I'm saying. And then he uses this phrase for Jesus that... I don't know for certain if it's sarcastic or not. Okay, let me explain why. He calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Or I think the King James says, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, why could this be construed as sarcastic? Well, here's why. Think about when Jesus was nailed to the cross and they put a sign above his head. What did it read? Here lies Jesus, King King of the Jews, the king, Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. What did uh, Philip say, I'm sorry, Nathaniel say, when his brother came to him and said, hey, we need to go see Jesus. Remember what he said? He said, what good could come from Nazarene, out of Nazareth? Could anything good come from that place? So I don't think it's an accident or a coincidence that Peter uses this word to his Jewish audience here. He's saying, Jesus, the Nazarene, the guy who you killed. Now, who would have been present, remember, a few weeks back prior to this at the Passover where Jesus was crucified? A lot of these same Jews. 
whether they stayed in the city up until this point or whether they went home and came back or whether they dwelt close by, they would have been there. They would have seen and heard and been a part, often probably some of them saying, crucify him, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. So Peter has just described, if you look back at, uh, let's see, look back a few verses earlier, and he starts talking about what this is, and he quotes from Joel, and he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, here's some signs and wonders, and he talks about blood and fire and smoke, and remember, these are not words created to comfort the people, but to, to remind them to call on the name of the Lord, to insist that they do that. And so Peter's just described all of these signs and wonders that we think are when Jesus is going to return. And then he immediately tells his Jewish audience that the only way to be saved from these things is to call on the name of the guy who you ridiculed. Let that sink in for a second. Without hesitation, Peter says that's the only way. That's the name. And if you skip forward to chapter 4, verse 12, he makes it even more clear. Him and John are standing in front of the high priest and his family. And, and he says, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's really clear what Peter is trying to do. So the man with the name that you laughed at, the man that you laughed at is now the man with a name that you have to call on to be saved. Now, we can call it sarcasm if we want. I wouldn't put that outside of the realm of possibilities for Peter. But surely there's intentionality in Peter's choice of words here. In fact, if you, as we go and as you consider this, whenever Peter talks about Jesus in one of his sermons... Almost every single time he uses that phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene. And a couple of times he adds, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, or of Nazareth. Now that's significant, because what does that designate? That shows us, Peter is telling us, that Christ, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's the word that he uses in Christ. That's the point of it. It's equivalent to him saying, Jesus the Messiah so Peter seems to be making it really clear here that the name of Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, was significant. Not only was it significant, but he was the long-awaited Messiah. How that must have stuck in the craw of these people listening that day. These Jews specifically listening that day. But I kind of think that that was Peter's point. Don't you? To call upon the name of Jesus is to put it in the, the analogy last week of our elevator example, is to push the help button in the elevator because you're stuck and you have no way of getting out safely on your own. It's an admission that you can't save yourself. You're calling on the only one who is qualified to save you, Jesus Christ. To do that requires humility, doesn't it? I, I, don't, I don't really care what your background is. To call on the name of Jesus is, requires humility. Because it says, I can't do this on my own. I have to call on someone else outside of me to fix me and to fix this problem. I think, too, of Saul on the road to Damascus. You guys probably remember the story. There, there's a great light. He 
probably falls off his, his horse and he says, what's going on here? Who are you? Guess what Jesus responded? From heaven, he's already exalted at the right hand of God. He responds back to Saul and he says, Jesus of Nazareth, whom, whom you are persecuting. That's what Jesus says, from ex- exalted in heaven, and he uses the name that they're laughing at for himself. I think that's kind of sarcastic too, maybe, on Jesus' part. Maybe not. But I think it's also an intentional choice of words that he uses with Saul. When Jesus said this, he was exalted at the right hand of God. And so even from that place of authority, he's humbled in the sense that he's saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I'm that guy who you laughed about, who you crucified. I I truly believe that this was an intentional word choice because it was intended to humble the Jewish crowd that was listening to that day. And I think it's just as much intended to humble us today. I believe that because Peter goes on to tell his Jewish audience that they are without an excuse and accountable, actually, for the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. If you look at verses 22 and 23, Peter starts to talk about this. This Jesus, he says, whom you saw do this, these mighty works and these wonders and signs in your midst, they were a testimony of God to you, but what did you do? You, you killed him. And here's the real scandalous part that either humbled or infuriated the audience. Peter is in a roundabout way saying, you guys are the lawless men that killed him. Now, why would that have infuriated some of the Jewish audience that day? Probably a lot of these folks, I mean, they were there for the Passover. They were, they were there now for Pentecost. They were probably very specific and regular in their Jewish ceremonial observances. They were good law-abiding Jews. And now Peter is saying, lawless men. And he's pointing fingers. Now, were these Jews literally the ones that pounded the nails? And lifted the cross? No. But they paved the way. They set it up. They said crucify him. And they forced Pilate's hand. And they rejected Jesus as the Christ. And so Peter lays the responsibility of the crucifixion at their feet. He had done, Jesus had done these mighty works and stuff right there for, for you to see. And verse 36 says, he did all these things so that they would believe that he is both Lord and Christ. But they didn't believe. And here, in, in these next few verses, we see this, these parallel truths of man's responsibility and God's definite plan. So we could ask these questions. Was the death of Jesus part of God's definite plan? We have to look at this text and say absolutely yes. We also ask the question, well, was Jesus' death devised and carried out by lawless men? Yeah, we have to look at this text and say yes to both of these. So what, what do we do with this? We a lot of times struggle with reconciling these things. But I just want to point out as we continue talking through this, it doesn't seem to bother Peter. 
we're here saying, wait a second. How could both these things say be yes, the answer to? But it doesn't bother Peter. In fact, for Peter, this is kind of one of his main points, isn't it? <laughs> right here. It's one of his main opening points to his whole sermon. It doesn't seem to occur to him at all that the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, those are his words, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God deprived men of the responsibility and consequences of their own actions. It just doesn't seem to be a problem for Peter. But the same thing applies to you and me today, doesn't it? If you do wrong, you are accountable for that wrong. I mean, we teach our children this from the moment they can understand things. Maybe sometimes even leading up to that point to help them understand things better. You do, you do the crime, you do the time. Isn't, that's a terrible way to say it probably, but that, that's the idea. You are responsible for your wrongdoing. God's sovereign rule over creation, over you, doesn't absolve you of your wrongdoing. No one, in fact, can say that they sinned as a result of God's plan. Pastor Stephen Cole says, without violating their will, God used evil men to accomplish his eternal purpose. But those evil men were responsible for their crime. No one can blame God for his own sin. We can think of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, left for dead. But in the end, what does he say? You can see in chapters 42 through 45 is the story of, of Genesis of this, he regarded it all in the end as the plan of God. Twice, in fact, he said to his brothers, God sent me before you. Well, how is he sent? By being thrown into a pit and sold. And yet, Joseph says twice, God sent me before you. And so there'd be no confusion in Genesis 45 verse 8 Joseph says to his brothers, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Question, were Joseph's brothers still accountable and responsible for their crime against him? Absolutely. Yes, they were. In fact, they recognized this themselves a few chapters earlier in 42 when they, they've been in front of Joseph, but they don't know it's him yet. Uh, they say, we're guilty concerning our brethren. They're talking about Joseph. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They saw it. They knew they were guilty and accountable. So we see these, these twin truths in scripture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we see him taught throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament we see it here, and so I think it would be unwise of us to ignore or minimize one of those at the expense of the other, simply just to win an argument or to be right. So if the Bible teaches these things as parallel truths in Scripture, we ought to do the same and believe them and probably refrain from arguing heavily about it. Romans 9 is heavy with talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. In fact, Paul there in chapter 9, verse 16 says, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So is a person saved by their own efforts or by God? Well, by God, 
not of their own efforts. And yet, in, in the very next chapter, guess who Peter, or guess who Paul quotes in Romans 10, 13? He quotes Joel, the same passage that Peter quotes in his sermon. He says, everyone whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Romans 9 is very heavy on the sovereignty of God, and Romans 10 says, whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So does it depend on God who have, has mercy, or does it depend on a person calling on the name of the Lord? Yes. So what do we do with this? Should we spend all of our days in a seminary library, racking our brains trying to figure out the answer to this? Should we try to elevate our thinking to the level of the mind of infinite God? Now look, it'd probably do us all a lot of good to spend some time in a seminary library studying. It's good to think deeply on challenging biblical truths. It's right to spend time studying God's word to know him better. But the truth is, God has not tasked you or me with reconciling this apparent paradox in his word. It's not a task he's told us to figure out. In fact, there are some things in Scripture, in the mind of God, that Jesus has clearly told us we will not understand. We will not figure out. You can just look back at chapter 1 of Acts. Look back at verse 7. The disciples are, are like, hey, Jesus, this is great. You're alive again. Are, are you going to restore Israel to power now? And what does Jesus say? If you remember from our text that day, I said, that's none of your business. That's what Jesus says. That's none of your business. It's not. So I, I think that's a better question to ask. A better question than how do we, f- how do we understand this apparent paradox perfectly is a, a better question to ask is what have we been tasked to do? Because we haven't been tasked with that. What have we been tasked to do? Jesus answers that. In verse 8 of chapter 1 that we've mentioned before, he says, it's not your place to know the times or seasons. That's up to the Father. But what is your place? What is your business? Verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the business that he's given Christians to do. You know what? Paul makes the same point, which I think is fascinating, in Romans 9 and 10. In chapter 10, this is a familiar text to you. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? What are we tasked to do? Christian, church, you have been sent that should be what dominates our thinking and our time and our study and our heart. We have been sent by the Savior to go and preach the message of reconciliation with God. And guess what? You don't need to wait for anything else to happen in your life than what God has already done in in your soul now. If you've been truly saved, there's nothing else that you need to wait on to go and to be one of the sent ones. The Spirit has already given you the power to be the witnesses of Christ to the world. So go. 
So some of you, like the Derringers, this may send you across the world. This may send some of our children and grandparents and grandchildren across the world to the other side. Some of us, it might mean that we just go to the place that we work and we're unashamed to speak of the hope that we have. Peter says, be ready always to do that, in fact. Here in Acts chapter 2, Peter just really seems to be driving his point home to the listeners. At least seven times in the book of Acts, he's preaching and he talks about the killing of Jesus and he points to his audience. I don't know if he physically points, but he points to his audience verbally and he says, it was you who crucified him. You put him to death. Seven times at least. Here's the first. And I, I just wonder, that's a significant thing to bring up in a message that many times. It's a big deal. And, it, and it's true, isn't it? They did crucify him. Again, they didn't lift the, the, the cross or hammer the nails necessarily. But they really were guilty of the greatest sin that you could ever commit. And that's rejecting Jesus Christ. And in their hatred, they murdered him. I, w- I want to consider what Jesus says. John chapter 15, verse 24. Jesus is speaking and he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The, these works, these incredible things that Jesus was doing... Jesus is saying here, I did them so that they would know who I am. But because they rejected me, now they're guilty of it. They're guilty of of rejecting me. They've seen and hated both me and my father, John 15, 24 says. The Jews listening this day in Jerusalem, they could not plead ignorance. They couldn't say, I didn't know that this was true. Peter reminds him, he says, it's, it's all happened in your midst. The works and wonders and signs all happened right here. It wasn't a question of evidence for them. It wasn't a question of, of revelation even. It, it was just a willful and open rebellion against God by rejecting Jesus. Jesus says they hated him. For the Jews, it was inconceivable that their Messiah could be killed on a cross. Messiahs win, right? Saviors overcome. Here, we've got a a weak man physically being killed on a cross. And for the Jews, it wouldn't fly. It's the same for many today. They they do not recognize Jesus as Messiah. How, How could he be? He died in shame and agony here. Saviors win. Peter says... Jesus wasn't just some unfortunate victim who helplessly fell into the hands of his enemies. No. Peter says right here, very clearly, he says, what happened at Calvary had been God's plan from the beginning for the redemption of mankind. From the beginning. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. These men and women were responsible for Christ's crucifixion. But the point that I think Peter would have us here today is, so are we. When we refuse to submit to the Lord's, to, to Jesus' lordship in our life, when 
We dethrone God in our heart out of selfishness because I'd rather do this thing than obey, than do what is right. When we plot to get rid of our maker out of every area of life, we see this in our, in our culture happening, we're the ones who are hammering the nails, so to speak. For the Jews, they saw the cross, this device of torture, they saw this as an obstacle to belief. Our Savior couldn't be killed like this. He's going to reign, and so it was an obstacle to belief. But for Christians, Christians see the cross as the means of their salvation. We sang it this morning. The rugged cross, my salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, this is his first epistle to the churches. He says about Jesus, He himself bore our sins in our body, in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He bore our sin in his body. This truth was all, as Peter says in Acts 2, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Amen. The cross wasn't the end, of course, or else everything else that happened Everything else that Jesus did was for nothing. It would be of little consequence. Jesus would have just been a a good teacher um, who did some interesting things, but whose body is still in the ground. But that's not what happened. Because God raised him from the dead, those incredible things that he said and did were verified, Peter says here, beyond the shadow of a doubt. John MacArthur says the greatest proof that Jesus is the Messiah then is not his teaching, his miracles, or even his death. It's his resurrection. It verified that everything Jesus said and claimed and did was actually true. I think this is interesting. Peter spent one verse on Jesus' life and works here in his sermon, verse 22. He spends one verse on Jesus' crucifixion and death, verse 23. And then verses 23, 24 through 32, he spends all on the resurrection and the results of it. Nine verses. There was no chance of Jesus staying dead, Peter says. He says, it was impossible. It's a great word for this. It was impossible. We use that word all the time, probably inappropriate, like wrongly. Uh, we say, well, it's impossible for this to happen. No, it's impossible for someone who's dead to come back to life. But it happened. What's really impossible is for Jesus to stay dead. That's what Peter's saying. What's really impossible is for Jesus to stay in the grave. Death was unable to hold him, not only because he's God, but because Jesus' death broke the power of sin. By raising Jesus up, Peter says that says God loosened the pangs of death. Pangs is not a word that we use very often. Uh, in the ESV, it's translated pangs. It can also be translated as just pains or throes, agony. And unfortunately, it's most of the time in Scripture used in relation to childbirth. Pain in childbirth. Paul In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, death spread to all men. Why? Because all men sinned. Did Jesus ever sin? 
No, we believe that his claims of perfection are true and that he never did sin. And so death could not hold him because he never sinned. Death spread to all men because all men sinned, Paul says. But for everyone who is called upon the name of the Lord and been saved, death is no longer an agony anymore. But death is a doorway to the presence of Jesus. What a blessed hope we have in Christ who sets us free from the grip of death and sin. Pastor Tony Evans says it this way. He says, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he broke the power of sin for all time. And since Christians are attached to Jesus by faith, since we hold the receipt that shows our sins have been paid for, we will not stay dead either. It's impossible for us to be held in death's power because it was impossible for Christ to be held in death's power. This defeat of sin and the grave has huge implications for you and me and Christians of all time everywhere. David understood this. This is why in verses 25 and 26, Peter quotes him. He says, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. I think Peter's rationale for quoting David lies in the makeup of his audience that day specifically. A Jewish crowd in which many of whom disbelieved that Jesus was the true Messiah. And and Peter, if you skip forward to verse 31, he doesn't hold anything back. Because here he takes one of their most revered and uplifted figures in Jewish history, David. And he says, David was talking about Jesus. (laughs) Look at verse 31. He says, he, talking about David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. See, the Jews probably thought David was talking about himself. And Peter connects the dots and he says, no. He's talking about Jesus. He's a prophet. He foresaw something that you didn't see. Peter shows from Psalm 16 that the Messiah's death, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus was all included in the will of God and was predicted in Scripture and was then fulfilled in Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, who you crucified, in fact. Now look. There are wonderful truths that we've talked about already this morning about hope of the power and grip of sin being loosened because of what Christ has done. The hope of being resurrected one day with him. Death cannot hold us. The grave cannot hold us. Jesus reigns over all and he will not be shaken. This makes our our heart glad and our tongues rejoice and gives us eternal hope. But I don't think that's the main point of Peter's message. I think the main point and the focus is what he returns to when he says, Jesus Christ is Lord, the one whom you crucified. David was prophetically speaking about the Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they killed. Peter is just not letting them off the hook here. Verse 31 is as clear as it could be. David was speaking about Christ. Psalm Psalm 16 couldn't be about David because Peter says, look, In essence, you can take a rock and throw it and probably get to David's tomb. He's close. I can take you there. We can walk and see where his body lay. 
This wasn't about David. David's body's still buried. But they'd seen evidence. They'd seen the person of Christ resurrected from the grave themselves. His body was gone from the tomb. It never saw corruption because death could not hold it. Because he had never sinned. He had not personally earned the wages of sin. But he voluntarily took upon himself the sin of others. So Peter uses, interestingly, this argument of how Jesus' body never saw decay. He uses this argument a bunch of times in the book of Acts. At least six times in his messages. So I think there must have been some significance here. The reality is, and we know this just physically, as soon as the heart stops and blood stops pumping, decay sets in. It starts to set in. It's inevitable. It's expected. But anybody who was listening to Peter here that day could probably easily go find someone within two minutes and say, hey, did you see Jesus resurrected in the flesh? And they'd find somebody. The grave couldn't hold him. It was an undisputed fact that Jesus had raised. And Peter says the reason is because Jesus is the Holy One. He is the Lord exalted at the right hand of God. So this is cool. Joel's prophecy is fulfilled in the Spirit being poured out on all kinds of people everywhere at the beginning of this chapter. David's prophecy is fulfilled in the resurrection of the Christ, of Jesus. This is what they talked about. And in verse 36, Peter again says, This Jesus whom you crucified, you killed him, Peter says, but God raised him. Peter's main point in his sermon has to be the main point of my sermon today, still today. It's this. We may not have been present to drive the nails, but the blame for Christ's death lies on me and you. Because he willingly took your sin to the cross. It was my sin that held him there. When we go our own way, we do our own thing. We, we don't want to take any of the responsibility for the bad stuff that happens when we do those things. And this is the issue that every person has to face, isn't it? Who's accountable for my sin? Is it me? Yeah. It is. This is the issue that we have to face. Are you willing to admit your desire for your own way and disregarding God's way? If you're not willing to admit that, the cross is still an obstacle for you. Because you look at it and say, why would God do that? You look at it and say, how could God do that? heard a preacher once say, you can't enter the gate of salvation without stooping low in humility as a little child. God says he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I pray that if you're listening and you've not humbled yourself before the Lord and received his salvation by grace through faith, I pray that you respond as the people do in verse 37. We'll read this again next week, but look at it today. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
this is really the greatest question, the, the best response to all of this. They say, brothers, what should we do? What do we do? We see this. We recognize our own part in this. It was me who, who put him on the cross. What do we do? My answer would be the same as Peter's. Look at verse 38. Peter responded. He said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Believe. Receive. Be baptized. If you're pierced to the heart, like it says the audience here was, and you're thinking like them, what should I do? Here's your answer. Now, if you'd like some more help in walking through this, we're going to sing one more song together, a song of reflection. And as we sing, I'll be standing up here. And if you'd like some more some prayer or some more information on what does this mean? I, I see that. I feel that. But I don't know the next step to take. I'd, be, I'd love to talk with you more. So before we sing, let's pray together. Lord, we need to be humbled in this. Because each one of us loves the darkness rather than the light. We would rather our, our deeds, our works, our sin not be exposed to the light. And so we run back to the darkness so often. But the truth of the gospel shines the brightest light that could be shine, shown in our hearts, exposes our sin, exposes our need for you, and then your spirit moves in our hearts to propel us towards salvation in Christ. And so may... May many who are listening, may those who are listening who don't know you ask this question, what should I do? And then know that it is repent, believe, be baptized, receive forgiveness, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, humble yourself before the Lord, repent of your sin. And Lord, I would pray that they would not wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. Old or young, rich or poor, variety of backgrounds. Your spirit has been poured out to all of us. And so I pray that we would see our part in this, our responsibility in this. But Lord, we ultimately know that your sovereign plan works all according to your good purposes. And so we pray your kindness and mercy be poured out on us today, even still. In Christ's name, amen.